Amen. Thank you, Hunter. Um, yeah, I want to give a quick shout out. Thank you, Chris Mack, for preaching the word uh, for us last week uh, so that our family had an opportunity to go uh, celebrate our uh, extended family Christmas that got canceled because of COVID and all sorts of other things. So uh, we were delighted in that. And uh, so, yeah, thanks, Chris, for doing that. We're going to kind of pick up a little bit uh, a little bit of overlap of where Chris was. And so if you're uh, visiting with us or new to us, uh, we've been walking through the book of Revelation in a sermon series, All Things New, Hope at the Revelation of uh, King Jesus. And uh, Chris had us in uh, the end part of chapter 5 last week, and in specifically, how does that affect uh, our vision as a church, uh, seeking to be a diverse people, and what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, and how that affects our vision as a church. And so I'm going to kind of back up and give the whole chapter 5. Uh, he kind of zoomed in on that, and I'm going to s- kind of set what Chris said in the context of the whole of chapter 5. Now, if you've just, uh, if, if you don't remember or are new to our sermon series on the book of Revelation, you might be real nervous. Uh, I want to assure you, uh, it will be okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, we started this by quoting uh, from the beginning of Revelation uh, 1.3. It says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. Uh, and Sometimes when we look at the book of Revelation, if you're uh, a new believer or even if you've been a believer for a long time, if you read the book of Revelation, your immediate thought often isn't, man, I feel so blessed. Uh, but rather, I feel very confused. Uh, and so what we're trying to do in the midst of this is to try and unpack a little bit of why we have confusion around this. Uh, this is an apocalyptic book, and so it's not something that we regularly read. So you shouldn't, you should be confused a little bit when you read it because it's not something that you are regularly reading. Uh, And so we're trying to unpack a little bit of the mystery behind this to showcase what it is that Jesus wants us to learn from this. Now, what's really important, we we walked through kind of the easier section of Revelation at the beginning, which was uh, the the letters that Jesus sends to these churches. uh, And they're very clear exhortations. They're things that we can read in other parts of Scripture. They make sense to us. Well, chapter 4 kind of transitions us to that place where you're like, okay, now there's dragons and beasts and horns and eyes and wings, and I don't know what to do with any of these things. Well, 4 and 5 function together to kind of set the stage for the rest of the book. And we saw that in chapter 4, John sees a picture into the throne room of heaven. He sees a picture of God on the throne, and he is instructed to worship. He is drawn into worship. And we're going to see a little bit of this new, uh, five kind of fits right within this, but there's a little bit of a difference into how uh, John experiences this worship uh, because King Jesus shows up in the midst of this. And so uh, there's a little bit of a difference here on how that uh, begins to function. So we're going to start here, uh, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, just at the start. We'll kind of pick up the whole book here in a minute. And all of these sermons are on our podcast and online, so uh, I did a <clears throat> kind of overview sermon. So if you want to know a little bit of how we're approaching the book and some of those pieces, uh, that's available on our website as well. So, uh, Revelation 5, 1 through 3. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and on the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. All right, what is this scroll that's going on here? Remember in 4, he saw a picture of the throne room of heaven. So this is God on the throne, and in his right hand is this scroll. Well, remember we said that uh, Revelation kind of alludes to the Old Testament more than all of the rest of the New Testament combined. So every, every, uh, almost every phrase is really this like hearkening back to the Old Testament. And both Isaiah and Daniel speak of a scroll or a book that is sealed. Now Daniel is uh, the prophet that uh, John pulls from the most. And so in Daniel t- chapter 12 verse 4 it says this, But you, Daniel, keep this prophecy a secret. Seal up the book until the time of the end, when many will rush here and there and knowledge will increase. Both in Daniel and Isaiah, this, prof- this book that is sealed refers to end time judgment and salvation, right? Daniel is very much uh, focused on this sort of end time judgment prophecy. And remember, in the scriptures, this, uh, the end times, this coming future kingdom, brings both judgment upon the wicked and salvations, salvation to God's people. So it is this that John sees in the right hand of God. This scroll representing the plan of God for judgment and salvation for the end of the world. This is a, a, a pretty important piece, right, to uh, unpacking. What does it mean to, to be in the end times? And remember, we've, one of the cornerstones of us walking through this book series, right, is to say that the end times, the latter days, the, the beginning of the end, however you want to say it, is right now. That we are in that right now. I'm going to continue to say this because I think uh, one of the ways in which we misinterpret this book so often is because we think, okay, well, I have yet to see a dragon pop out of the ocean, so this is probably not talking about our time. And so we think that this is only referring to the final moments before Jesus returns. But apocalyptic literature is figurative in its uh, nature. We're going to see this in a moment. we don't believe that Jesus has seven eyes, but he's going to have seven eyes in a moment, right? This is figurative language that means something. And so what's really important about that is this book is for us right now. The New Testament has this great tension in it. We call it the already and not yet. That Jesus has already accomplished all that we need for salvation. And not yet do we experience all of that. We don't experience all of that right now. And so there's this tension, right? Because Jesus has come, he has accomplished, and he will come again to consummate his kingdom, to bring it to its fullness. And we live in the in-between. The book of Revelation is describing this whole in-between time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So we now are in these end times. And I'm going to continue to say this a lot because it's really important for us to be able to understand this book and actually use it and apply it and not just try to think through like, okay, well, if he's talking about these locusts with armor, he's probably talking about Apache helicopters Uh, because that's how some people uh, interpret this book because they're like, well, John doesn't know what an Apache helicopter would look like, so let's just try. No, no, no. 
That's not how these figurative languages work because it applies to the whole of the church age. So it applied to the first century and it applies to us now. So uh, we've got to get that uh, in our heads as we continue to walk through this. So there's this scroll that is sealed up that has uh, the plan of God for judgment and salvation in the right hand of God. And a strong angel shows up. Now, Remember, we've already seen some depictions of angels here. Angels are these terrifying creatures, right? They've got wings. Uh, you know, Isaiah describes them with six wings. Uh, we just saw in chapter 4 uh, these living beings, right, with these huge wings with eyes all over them. right? The, the, the picture is a terrifying, strength, strong angel. But this identifies him as a strong angel. He's even stronger than the other angels. He is mighty. He is one that John is terrified of. A strong angel shouts with a loud voice, who is able to open the scroll? Implying that this strong angel can't open the scroll. The angels, which are already terrifying, can't open the scroll. The living beings can't open the scroll. The elders can't open the scroll. No one can open the scroll. No one is worthy. Not one. No angel, no human, no elder, no living being, no strong man, no wise woman, no ruler, no king, no rich person, no celebrity, none. None are found worthy to open the scroll. And John's response, he says, Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. John rightly weeps at this reality. No one is worthy. No one can open the scroll. And he weeps. He weeps because no one is found to be worthy. It's often the case, isn't it, for us, that when we think about the plan of God for judgment and salvation, the plan of God to right all wrongs, we tend to despair. We tend to think, That God doesn't know what he's doing. We tend to weep. I mean, look around. Look at the wars. The violence. Look at the racism and discrimination. The sexism. The poverty. The divisions we see. The inequalities that we are witness to and even affected by. The struggling economy. The abuse that we have endured or witnessed. The broken relationships that we see or are a part of. Or we can look inward at our own sin. Our own brokenness. Our own inability. Our own anxiety. Our own faithlessness. None are worthy to open the scroll. And that's the way it will always be. The promises of God look to be failing. The plan of God looks to be a terrible plan. Right? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves and the lives that we experience in this world, it is often the case that we look around and say, if God is on a throne, it's not a very good one. Because this does not look like God is on the throne. My life does not look like He is on the throne. How could the plan of God be good if this is happening to me? John's despair is really what we all feel often. And sometimes we can stay here. 
We can wallow in this. What begins as sort of a right recognition of the brokenness of, of, of the world around us and the brokenness inside of, of us can morph into an endless spiral of doubt, self-pity, self-hatred, fear, hopelessness, and despair. Because none is worthy to open the scroll. This is why we need each other. Because something's going to happen to John here in just a moment. And that's what we need to be for each other. When we fall into despair, we need to be awakened from our despair. And that's exactly what happens to John. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Remember, the, the, seven, uh, the number seven is fullness. And so this is the most sealed thing on the planet. In the very hand of God. And there is one who has been found worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Look, the one that we have waited for has come. The one that we have waited for has come. The seed of Eve has come. The promised son of Abraham has come. The lion of Judah, the one with authority, has come. The reference to the lion of Judah is a reference to a prophecy uh, that's over uh, the, the 12 sons of Israel that make up the 12 tribes of Israel. In Genesis 49, this is to Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. You will grasp your enemies by the neck. All your relatives will bow before you. Judah, my son, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. He ties his fowl to a grapevine, the colt of his donkey to a choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. This one has come. The Lion of Judah, the one who comes in power. Weep no more, John. Your Savior is here. Victory has come. He will eat his prey. He crouches like a lioness. He roars like a lion. He crushes his enemies. Now some of us, when we hear this, we're like, now we're talking. All right. Now we're talking. I, 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 don't, I, I, I don't like this despair stuff. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has come. Victory has come. Not only that, he says he's the heir to David's throne. In Isaiah 11, in that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. This is the one that that the elder says has come. He has won the victory. He is powerful. He rules. He has authority. And it sounds like this elder is saying, wait, look, we found the one who is worthy to open the scroll. Victory has come. Now, if some of us 
respond to the brokenness of the world around us by weeping and falling into despair. Others of us respond at times by emphasizing the power of God to subdue the brokenness around us. There's a danger here. Sometimes the church, us individually and us collectively, we seek to embrace power and strength to gain victory. Because we like this vision. Like, we like this vision of God as a lion who rules. Like, that makes sense to us. When we look at the brokenness around us, we're like, no, 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 what we need is power. That's what we need. We need a lion, a victor. Now, I've spoken about this before, uh, but the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine in the 4th century is one of the biggest turning points in church history. Right? Constantine is not a Christian, and he is in battle, and he has a vision the night before this battle, and he sees the symbol that identified the Christians, and he was told, by this you will have victory. So he became a Christian. Now, whether his conversion is genuine or not, that's another story, another question. But what it does is it, it kickstarts this new phase of Christianity. Christianity, in the time of Revelation, on, in the early church, is a persecuted religion. Is one that you are uh, facing uh, turmoil and potentially death just for being a Christian. When Constantine converts, everything changes about that. He makes Christianity illegal. He then uh, eventually makes it the official religion of the Roman Empire. Right? And so there are some huge positive things that happen from this. We uh, just recently right, went through a sermon series on the Incarnation. And we learn a ton about the Incarnation from uh, this early church council called Nicaea, where all the bishops were able to get together. That council didn't happen until 325 A.D. because the bishops couldn't all gather because they would have been killed. That's post-Constantine converting. So, so it's really important. We were able to gather and write this important theological document because of that. But there's this other thing that happens that's a danger. Because you see, remember, one of the big points of the book of Revelation is, church, you are in Babylon. Rome is Babylon. Don't be seduced by Babylon. We're going to talk a lot about that as the rest of this book unfolds, as vision after vision showcases. You are in Babylon. You are not in the kingdom. But you are of the kingdom. You need to be aware and not be seduced by the power of the empire. Empire power is seductive. This is one of the main themes of Revelation. Obviously, right, this is post or pre-Constantine. But don't be seduced by it. Don't be seduced by empire power. Now, that's not the only kind of power that we can be seduced by. There is personal power in relationships. Uh, power dynamics between relationships, uh, between individuals. And seeking that power is seductive. Having social power in our culture is highly seductive. Having economic power is seductive. Having spiritual power is seductive. There are ways in which we as humans, fallen humans, seek to exercise power and authority in harmful ways. And given power and authority, sometimes we want to use it for good, but end up actually 
using it for evil. We need to be very careful here, right? And I say all this because we're, it's really easy to get excited about this line of the tribe of Judah. But we need to be very careful here. There is a, uh, there is a resurgence here recently of uh, support for Christian nationalism. This belief that we need to form America into a Christian nation ruled and governed by God's law. And that we should work to bring about the convergence of the church and the state in very explicit ways, creating laws to legislate Christian worship and a particular set of moral ethics that may or may not be rooted in Scripture, particularly when this movement so often is connected with other movements of white nationalism and protecting a a, a white Christian subculture and not necessarily promoting things of Christ. The very thing that Chris was telling us about last week, which is in opposition to the mission of Jesus. So it's hard to have Christian lumped in there if it's opposed to the very mission of Jesus. If that's uh, the case, then why, why would it, if, if, if that's the case, and that's clearly, obviously, not what the Scriptures would teach, why is it tempting for Christians to embrace this? Or even to embrace a light version of this that insists on Christians only supporting uh, certain political candidates or parties or policies or not advocating for those things uh, that, uh, or like saying that there's only the, this one way to be a Christian in the public sphere. This narrow set of things which is non-negotiable. Why, why, why would it be the case? Right? Why would that be something that is a, a danger to us? Well, I'm not saying that the, the rea- that there is no uh, way for us to engage in the culture or in politics or in any of those things. Certainly not. Actually, the opposite. And we're going to talk about that at some point here. But if we say that the only or even the primary way to accomplish the kingdom and to advance the kingdom is through the power of the state, then we have started to be seduced by empire power. And... That means that sometimes we will give up the mission of Jesus or the ethics of Jesus for the sake of maintaining power. That we will be forced into spaces in which we have to choose between what Jesus tells us to do and what the kingdom of the world tells us to do. And what the kingdom of the world tells us is right and what Jesus tells us is right. Any kind of idolatry, seeing the American way of life as the savior of the world falls into this, right? And we are seduced into this because it's really comfortable and easy. Guys, it's really easy in comparison to some of the things that we've talked about already in the book of Revelation that the church has faced. Some of the things that our brothers and sisters around the globe face in countries in which it is illegal to be a Christian or in which you face intense persecution for being a Christian. It's easy to stay here and we are afraid of losing that. That's understandable. That's understandable. That's why Paul or that's why John in Revelation is warning us to not be seduced by the power of the empire. We like power, we like to win, and we like to be on the winning side of things. But, 
It's not the only power that we are at, uh, that can seduce us. We can also be seduced to accommodate the, the claims of the Christian faith for the sake of social power in our culture. One of the other ways in which we are constantly being bombarded and pressured is to compromise on ethics and to abandon biblical and historical, historic positions, uh, Christian positions, because they're no longer timely in our culture. They're no longer the thing that is acceptable in our culture. And so there's temptation to want social power, to want to be on the winning side, and to abandon those things. There's a, now, now, there is a difference uh, between holding to those, uh, there's a difference between being uh, uh, challenged, right, in our culture uh, and being called uh, bigoted or hateful or anything like that. Uh, there's a difference between that being be- simply because you hold to uh, traditional Christian sexual ethics, for instance, or because you actually are hateful and bigoted, right? And if that's the case... Uh, then you need to repent because Jesus doesn't like that, right? Like we, uh, uh, all people are made in the image of God and we are called to love all people. And so if the culture calls us out for hate because we actually are hateful, we need to repent of that and move in a different direction. If the culture calls us out because of hate, not because we're actually being hateful, but simply because our position is no longer acceptable, that's a different thing. And we might feel the pressure to to either ignore that, not talk about it, uh, ignore it when it comes up in the scriptures, uh, run away from it, any of those things, because we want to maintain some social power. We're afraid of losing friends. We're afraid of being marginalized in, in our social circle. We're afraid of all of those pieces. Right? As much as we say, hey, you got to watch out for this Christian nationalism thing and empire power, we ought to equally be concerned about the draw of social power. It's a draw upon us because we like to be on the winning side of things. There's great temptation to accommodate for social power. There's also the dangers of economic power. If I can just get enough money, I'll be okay. And as soon as I get that amount of money, the question is, if I can just get enough money, I will be okay. There's just never enough, right? As soon as I get to that place, I've set a new limit on what actually I need. And I'll, I'll, I'll tithe, I'll, I'll, I'll give generously, I'll do all those things as soon as I get things set up in my life. As th- soon as I get all this stuff set up right, I'll, I'll, I'll be fine. Or uh, I'll tithe and, and I'll do all those things. I think I'm being faithful in that. And therefore, because I do that, I get to make as much money as I want, try to get as much money as I want, and spend it however I want. Because look, I tithe. It's fine. God doesn't care about what I do with the rest of it. You see, there's great seductive power, or seductive forces to economic power. Be careful, because Jesus tells us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now certainly, there's a a point in that of uh, what you ultimately value most and worship most. But also, he's literally meaning your treasure, like your literal money, right? Where you put that will start to affect your heart. There's great draw to those things. Some of the greatest corporate sins in church history, like American slavery, 
have their roots not only in the seductive power of racial empire, but also in the economic power of exploitation. That's very real. That was a very real draw. We cannot give this up because look at what we're going to give up. Look at what we have. It's a very real draw. So, it's a very real temptation for us. How we treat, if, if we uh, are our bosses, how we treat employees. Uh, all of us, how we treat our neighbors in this city. How we treat the vulnerable. All of these things all relate to how we think about owning economic power. Having economic power. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, that was sort of uh, like a crazy like turn. Like I thought we were getting real excited about the Lion of Judah. And like, what are you doing up there? Like, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why are you yelling at us about this stuff? We were just getting excited about the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Come on. Like, why are you yelling about this stuff? Right? Because there's this temptation for us to align ourselves with power and strength. And to see this victorious lion. To be told of this victorious lion. Wait, why shouldn't we think about power and strength? Because we need to keep reading. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with the incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. Here's the thing about this victorious lion. John is told, wait, weep no more because look, there is the Lion of Judah. But what does John see? Right, He's told the Lion of Judah has come. But when he looks, he sees a lamb who was slain, standing in the midst of the throne. Jesus, the lamb who was slain, who has seven eyes representing his all-seeing, and seven horns representing his all-powerful rule and reign. Representing the sevenfold Spirit of God, right? The fullness of the Spirit of God, all of those things. Jesus is standing there. 
Jesus is the one who comes in victory and in power, yes. But his victory is submitting himself to the defeat of the cross. The most ironic and glorious event in all of history, the cross of Jesus Christ. Not only is this the great reversal where, as Paul says, the weakness of God is stronger than any strength, but here we see here, this is the very thing that makes him worthy to take the scroll. Right? Did you catch this? What makes him worthy to take the scroll? He's stronger than the angels, right? The, the strong angel can't take the scroll. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the heir to David's throne. This is his throne. Why is he worthy to take the scroll? Because he was slain. Because he died. Because he conquered, not by victorious power, but by submitting himself to death. By being slain, he conquers sin, death, and Satan. By bearing our sin on the cross, removing the very sting of death, and gutting the accusations of Satan against God's people. This is victory. The way of the cross. The way of the cross is victory. That means that the way of the cross has to shape everything about who we are as God's people. This is why I talked about the seductive forces of power. Because when we hear the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, this powerful one has come, we tend to forget that his power is executed in weakness and in suffering. Weakness and in suffering. This has to shape our worship. The very center of this book, right, is this vision, four and five. John seeing the throne room of heaven. And what's at the very center of the throne room of heaven? Jesus, the lamb that was slain. He is worthy to take this scroll which is sealed up with the judgment and salvation of God's people, right? The judgment of the wicked and the salvation of God's people. His plan to execute all those things. Right? This is the most important thing in the universe. And what's at the center focus? Jesus. Because he was slain. Millions of angels are singing, you were slaughtered on a cross. That, what, that is what makes you worthy. It's the very center point of our worship. This we, we forget, friends, because we're so used to talking about the cross at church, we forget how crazy this story is, how countercultural this is. We worship God who came in the flesh and submitted himself to death, and not just death, shameful death. The Roman cross was not an honorable way to die. It was a brutal, shaming, publicly shaming death that Jesus willingly submitted himself to on our behalf. This has to shape not only our worship, but all of our ethics. We love because he loved. We embrace loving enemy even unto death. Why? Because of the cross. You see, this is why this vision is so important of the lion and the lamb. 
Because it's really easy for us to emphasize the lion and say, our enemies ought to be crushed. Because look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. What did he say? You're going to crush your enemies. You're going to pounce on them like prey. But how does Jesus do that? By being pounced on. What, what does that mean for us, his people? Well, we've, we've said this already, right? When Jesus says, faithful are the ones who endure to the end or conquer, right? He used that language over and over again. Conquering, enduring to the end, all of that. What did we say that was? Well, Revelation 12 tells us, and they have defeated, this is speaking of the saints, have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Our conquering comes in the way of the cross. Our submitting to the way of Jesus is how we conquer. This, friends, the seduction of empire power, social power, economic power, all of it, the antidote to that is not yelling at you about it, though I did a little bit. It's not shaming. It's not fundamentalism. It's not seclusion from the world. It's not running away from the world. It's the cross. It's seeing the blood of the Lamb as the high point of history and embracing it as the central tenet of our faith. To be cross-centered, gospel-centered, right? To be, as we say, centered on Jesus, right? That's part of our vision. Is to be centered on dying to live. Losing to win. Suffering for glory. And in the process, loving our neighbor, whether that's friend or enemy, unto death. Not their death. Our death. Loving not their lives unto death. It should shape our political engagement. We should enter into conversations in our culture with humility. Knowing the blood of the Lamb with the goal of flourishing and honoring all who are made in the image of God, not simply winning. That's not our goal. And the goal, if we are to be shaped by the cross, is to be like Jesus, right? We just talked about this in Philippians 2, right? Look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. So often when Christians engage politically in the world, we are looking out for the interests of only us. Jesus says that's not how you engage. You are like me. You look out for the interest of others first. Not your own. We have to look out with the understanding and even the expectation that we'll be misunderstood. And we don't need to defend ourselves. Jesus was silent before his accusers. Now there are times when it is right and good to defend our faith to speak about those things. And then yet also there are times where we got to trust the Spirit and say, my reputation isn't worth anything. It's okay. I submit to the way of cross of the cross. I'll be misunderstood. Jesus certainly was. Not only does Jesus submit himself to death on a cross, his group of followers run away. And after he's resurrected and then ascends into heaven, you would think all the nations are going to gather around. Nope, 120 people. That's it. 
totally misunderstood. And yet, he is now granted the honor of millions of angels singing of his worthiness. It ought to shape our suffering. Hebrews, the author to Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. Sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. Friends, this is challenging to us, right? I mean, this is really challenging to us. We don't like suffering. We don't like suffering. You accepted with joy people taking your stuff. You accepted with joy public ridicule. When's the last time we as a church looked like that? Where we said, it is joy to suffer along with Jesus. Rather than to, to, to complain and to fight against and to defend myself and to make sure my rights are protected. And Jesus gave up his rights. Why would we do that? Why? Why? Well, just before this, the author to Hebrews gives the motivation, which is the same as what we've just been talking about. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Because Jesus went there for us, we can act like him in the world. Right? This then shapes our mission. The cross, not only does the cross do this incredible thing for us individually, it does it, right? Worthy are you for you were slaughtered and your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is what Chris focused on last week. Now, when he says from every tribe, tongue, or from every tribe, uh, language, people, and nation, right? The number four is really important. It means comprehensive. He's like, there's nothing I'm leaving out. It's like north, south, east, west. I'm covering all bases. If there's a type of person out there, Jesus died for them. And he bought them. So if the cross of Jesus Christ is the most important thing in history and the thing that is to shape everything that we are and it accomplished a global multi-ethnic people of God, if we're not about that, then we're not about the cross of Jesus Christ because it's what it did. It's what it did. To be about the cross of Jesus means you must be about the multi-ethnic mission of God to reconcile people across all racial Ethnic, socioeconomic, gender, language, generation, and political lines. Every kind of division that exists, Jesus, by the cross, seeks to mend. To reconcile people to God and to one another. 
This is what the cross has accomplished. You cannot be about the cross and not about the multi-ethnic mission of God, the global unified people of God. Why, why, why do we at this church, why, why, why do we live this, repeat this, suffer for it, work at it, commit to it with every fiber of our being? If you've been around for any time, you hear this all the time. Why? Because the cross did it. Because the cross accomplished it. And because the cross is at the center of worship in heaven, millions of angels are singing, Jesus, you're worthy because you did this thing. And we say we follow Jesus, meaning we got to be about the very thing that he's about. We have to be about it because of the blood of Jesus on the cross. That's the only reason why. It's the only thing that motivates us to try hard things in this place. To stumble and fail at it all the time and then to repent and try again. That's the only reason we do these things is because the cross of Jesus Christ has accomplished it. He has done it. All that Chris said to us last week about the global church, right, which values and loves unity and diversity, distinction for the sake of unity, right, that's the new song that they're singing. All throughout the Psalms, right, there's this refrain, sing a new song to the Lord. What is the new song? Here it is right here. This is the new song. Jesus, you are worthy because you were slain and because you've purchased people from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is the new song. This is the thing that delights God's heart. The thing that we sing about. If you care about the cross of Christ, you must care about this global mission because it's literally what the cross accomplished. All of this being shaped by the cross, is to lure us away from the seduction of power. To hear about the lion of the tribe of Judah who conquers, and then to see a lamb who was slain. All of it is because Jesus is worthy. Right? Remember when we were talking about this uh, in Philippians 2, in this hymn about Christ and how every knee will bow and declare him worthy. That's exactly what John sees. Every knee is going to bow, willingly or forced, to admit that Jesus is Lord, that He is worthy, that He gains all glory and honor and praise. All of this, right? Moving us away from all of this stuff and entering into the way of the cross All of those things are hard. Why would we do it? Because Jesus is worthy. Because he's glorious. And not only is he worthy and glorious in all his honor, in all of his majesty, in all of his strength, in all of his character, all of those things, yes. But he's also exercised all that authority to buy you. To buy the global church, yes, from every tribe, language, people, and nation, yes. And you, individually who make that up. Because he's used all of his strength to call you to come near to his worthiness. Not just to show it, right? The kingdoms of this world, when they embrace power, what do they do? They show it off. What does Jesus do? He says, come into the throne room. Come be with me. I'm not trying to show it off. I want you to come experience it. Come here with me. If we want to experience the presence of the glorious Christ, we're going to submit ourselves to the way of the cross. 
Because Jesus is worthy of everything. Let's pray to him. And then let's sing to him. Jesus, we come before you now because we, we know that you are worthy. We know that we're not. And so we come, Lord, not with the boldness of ourself, but with the boldness of your blood. You have called us because you have freed us from our guilt and our shame and our sin because you died in our place so that our sin could be forgiven. You have said now you can come boldly into this very throne room in which you are worshipped by millions of angels. Jesus, we want to come and we want to come into that space. We want to experience your presence. We want to know you. And we want to be shaped by you so that we would go from this place embracing the way of the cross in all of our interactions in this city. So that this city would look to us and say, this is a strange people shaped by some strange thing. And we could tell them, come experience this Jesus and you will know it. Jesus, would you gain all glory and honor as we praise you. We pray this in Christ's name.